And we're back. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood, and fired the shot heard round the world. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1837. On April 18, 1775, a force of about 700 British soldiers began a 20-mile march from Boston to Concord, Massachusetts, intent on destroying a rebel cache of military supplies. They had set out under the cover of darkness, hoping to catch the colonists by surprise. But as any American who made it through middle school could tell you, that's not quite how this story goes. Paul Revere, the most visible and enduring piece of a sprawling colonial intelligence operation, alerted nearby townsfolk that the British were coming. On April 19th, in the town of Lexington, American Minutemen had assembled and exchanged fire with the British regulars. Later that same day, the colonial militia and British army clashed again in the town of Concord. Undeterred, the British found and destroyed the military supplies in the town, and then turned back to Boston. But by then... Thousands of colonists had answered the call to arms. From within hidden groves and from behind stone walls, the colonists fired on the redcoats as they first marched, then fled back to the safety of the city. By the time they had arrived, 15,000 angry New Englanders were hot on their heels. The first shots of the American Revolution had been fired, and Boston was under siege. I'm Nate Hinchy, and this is Cool Shit, the podcast. This is a show about interesting topics from science, history, the arts, and more. In other words, if it fascinates me, I'm going to talk about it. I know that the world can sometimes seem like an awfully depressing place, but trust me when I say there's some pretty cool shit out there. I thought I'd begin with a quick explanation of why I picked this topic. One, I love sieges. Well, more accurately, I love the movie The Siege. Nobody, and I mean nobody, does righteous indignation like Denzel Washington. What if what they really want is for us to herd children in the stadiums like we're doing and put soldiers on the street and, and have Americans looking over their shoulders, bend the law, shred the Constitution just a little bit? Because if we torture him, General, we do that and everything that we have bled and fought and died for is over. And they've won. They've already won. And two, I'm from Boston. So admittedly, I may be a little bit biased because of that. But still, I think this is one of the most fascinating yet still relatively unknown parts of the story of the American Revolution. Maybe the best place to start is describing what Boston looked like in 1775. If you live here, or if you've ever visited, it's important to know that the landscape of the city was completely different back then. 
And I don't just mean there are skyscrapers and paved roads now. Huge areas of the city that exist currently were underwater in the 18th century. At the time, the entirety of Boston was situated on a small peninsula that jutted out into a natural harbor. It was connected to the mainland by an isthmus called the Boston Neck, which was only about 120 feet wide. In 1631, some of the first settlers in the area built an earthen wall and wooden gate to seal off Boston from quote-unquote undesirables, like wild animals or natives. I'd say it was a different time, but here we are again. The gate would be locked each evening, and no one was permitted to leave or enter the city until the following morning. Which is all to say, if you could close the neck, you could bottle up Boston. And that is exactly what the New England militias that chased the British from Lexington and Concord did. But while the British army had been cut off from access to the mainland, the Royal Navy still ruled the seas. With resupply possible via Boston Harbor, both sides settled in for a prolonged siege. Patriot sympathizers were allowed to leave the city, and loyalists from the countryside sought refuge with the British. Those who remained in Boston were ordered to turn over their arms, and about 2,000 muskets were collected. Which might help explain America's future, let's call it squeamishness, about handing over their guns to the government. From my cold, dead hands... With the city secured, the two armies turned to fortifying their positions and securing necessary supplies. The British needed hay to feed their horses, and so they turned their eyes to the nearby Grape Island, where about 40 tons were stored. But when the colonists caught wind, they sailed to the island themselves and fought off the British. The skirmish resulted in no casualties, but one barn was burned. It gets more interesting than this, I swear. In an attempt to deny the Redcoats a much-needed source of meat, the Americans began removing livestock from another harbor island. The British quickly responded, and the fighting that ensued would go down in history as the battle for the cattle. Okay, not really. Would have been cool if it did, though. The early days of the siege were defined by this kind of light skirmishing and prodding, with neither side willing to commit too many of its forces to any given fight. But that would all change with the arrival of General William Howe aboard the HMS Cerberus. To be fair, there were a few different British generals in Boston throughout the course of the siege, but Howe is really the only one you're going to need to remember. 46 years old by the time he arrived in Boston, Howe had already served in the British Army for nearly 30 years. He had gained distinction and rose the ranks for his service in the French and Indian War, most notably in the capture of Quebec a battle in which Howe was the one doing the sieging, rather than being besieged himself. Maybe owing to that experience, Howe was eager to break out from Boston and take the fight to the rebels. The first stage in his plan was to secure two nearby positions, Bunker Hill to the north and Dorchester Heights to the south. But the leaders of the colonial militias uncovered his plan, and on June 13th, about 1,200 colonial troops, under the command of William Prescott, took up positions on Bunker and Breed's Hills. Bunker Hill would get all the glory, by the way, but most of the fighting would actually take place on Breed's Hill. Sort of like how Hydrox cookies came out four years before Oreos, but since Oreo had the far more appetizing name, nowadays everyone just assumes Hydrox is the knockoff brand. But before you shed a tear for Hydrox, you should know that their parent company, Sunshine Biscuits, makes Cheez-Its, 
while Nabisco, Oreo's parent company, makes the disgustingly named cheese Nips. So in the end, it all came out in the wash. Prescott and his soldiers hastily constructed a redoubt on Breed's Hill. A redoubt, which is French for a place for retreat, is essentially a fort. The next morning, a British general and his officers were surveying the American defenses when a loyalist officer recognized his brother-in-law, William Prescott, walking along the walls of the redoubt. The general asked his officer, quote, will he fight? The officer responded, quote, as to his men, I cannot answer for them, but Colonel Prescott will fight you to the gates of hell, unquote. General Howe would lead the assault himself, and he, along with about 2,000 of his men, traveled in longboats across the Charles River to the base of the hills. Prescott, seeing that he was outnumbered, called for reinforcements. Some of the first to arrive were the men of the 1st New Hampshire Regiment, under the command of Colonel John Stark. Now, I have to stop here, because, as I'm sure I've mentioned before, I am a huge Game of Thrones nerd. And this is the perfect excuse to play this clip. But I'm a brother of the Night's Watch. I pledge them my life, my honor, my sword. I don't know what I have left to give you. You can give me the North. I can't. Even if I wanted to, I'm a bastard. The snow. Kneel before me. Lay your sword at my feet. Pledge me your service and you'll rise again as John Stark, Lord of Winterfell. Interestingly enough, John Stark was accompanied by the head of the 3rd New Hampshire Regiment, a Colonel James Reed. And if I have my history correct, the last time a Stark and a Reed went into battle together, it was Ned Stark and Howland Reed going to rescue Ned's sister Lyanna from the Tower of Joy at the end of Robert's Rebellion. And I know what you're probably asking yourself. Oh, is this when the Nate just talks about Game of Thrones part of the podcast begins? No. Now it ends. Okay, I'll try to stop. But I make no promises. Right. Jesus. I promise. The New Hampshire John Stark, by the by, would go on to become one of the most famous heroes of the Continental Army. And in 1809, he would pen the line, quote, Live free or die. Death is not the worst of evils. Unquote. The first half of which would become the New Hampshire state motto in 1945. Prescott and his men had been reinforced and had taken up defensive positions behind the six-foot-high walls of their redoubt. Now, this may have given other, more sensible military minds some pause, but not General Howe. Howe believed that the colonists were nothing more than an unorganized rabble that would break at the first sign of blood. And he certainly wasn't the only one. When the British Parliament debated how to respond to early signs of revolution in the colonies, like the 1773 Boston Tea Party, 
it sounded an awful lot, like a parent just losing their shit after their kid throws a tantrum in the middle of a supermarket. But more genteel, of course. One minister said the goal of the British Army should be, quote, reducing America to a just obedience, unquote. Another, quote, we have too long shown our forbearance and long-suffering. Our thunders must go forth. America must be conquered, unquote. So we can't altogether blame Howe for thinking his strategy of marching directly at a bunch of people sitting behind a wall with guns was a viable one. He assumed that the colonial volunteers wouldn't be able to withstand an assault by seasoned professional soldiers. So at about 3 p.m., the British started their ascent up Breed's Hill. One of the most famous stories of the Battle of Bunker Hill, if not the revolution as a whole, is William Prescott telling his men, quote, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, unquote. Unfortunately, no one knows for sure if it was Prescott who said it, or if anyone even said it at all. But since it sounds pretty badass, let's just all pretend that he did. When the Redcoats had come within a few dozen yards of the redoubt, the militiamen opened fire and decimated the British ranks. The Brits promptly retreated and regrouped at the base of the hill. General Howe ordered another assault, but once again the colonists sent forth a volley of musket fire that ripped through the British lines and forced another retreat down the hill. Hundreds had been killed or wounded in the first two unsuccessful attempts to take the summit, but General How About We Try That One More Time decided to try the same damn thing one more time. And amazingly, the third time was indeed the charm. The colonists had nearly run out of gunpowder, and so while they were able to inflict some final casualties on the attackers, they weren't able to force another retreat. The British poured into the redoubt, engaging the defenders in close-quarter combat with bayonets. True to the officer's word that Colonel Prescott would fight to the gates of hell, he was one of the last men to flee, ordering others to retreat while parrying bayonet thrusts with his ceremonial saber. The British had taken the hills, but at a terrible cost. 226 British troops had been killed, and another 828 had been wounded. Of the more than 1,000 British casualties, nearly 100 had been officers. Conversely, the colonists suffered only about 450 casualties, 140 of whom had been killed. It would prove to be the bloodiest battle of the American Revolution, and it became a rallying point for colonists who saw in their defeat vulnerability in the mighty British war machine. As Nathaniel Green, a young American officer, would put it, quote, I wish we could sell them another hill at the same price, unquote. Most immediately, the staggering British losses meant that they could not pursue the retreating colonial forces. And so, for the time being, the siege of Boston would continue. George Washington received word of the Battle of Bunker Hill on the road to Boston. Like it had for many others, the news gave him hope that victory might be possible. 
in June of 1775, the Continental Congress had voted to adopt the militias laying siege to Boston into a new Continental Army and had unanimously elected Washington to serve as the new Army's commander-in-chief. In many ways, Washington was the obvious choice. He was a member of the early American nobility, his family having made its fortune in tobacco farming. He was from Virginia, the most populous and powerful of the 13 colonies. He had risen to the rank of colonel during the French and Indian War, and upon his retirement from military service, had been elected to the House of Burgesses, Virginia's legislature. He certainly didn't have an immaculate record, however. His tobacco plantations had been built on the backs of slaves. Obviously, this wasn't unusual at the time. Even in Boston, one in five families owned slaves. He was only 43 years old, though youth was the rule rather than the exception among those pressing the cause of liberty. And while Washington had shown courage in battle, to be sure, he had also surrendered to the French at Fort Necessity, given disastrous advice to a commanding officer that led to the deaths of two-thirds of his unit, and had himself never commanded anything larger than a regiment. But at least he was aware of his own limitations. In accepting the appointment as commander-in-chief, Washington spoke with great humility. I would quote it myself, but David Morse from HBO's John Adams frankly has a lot more gravitas than I do. Congratulations, General Washington. I am truly sensible of the high honor the Congress has done me. But I tell you now, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. By the way, if you haven't seen it, that's a great miniseries. Paul Giamatti does a good John Adams, but it's Laura Linney who really blows the doors off of the place as Abigail Adams. Anyway, it's all well and good that Washington was so modest, but it's important to note that the day Congress was choosing who was going to lead the new army, Georgie showed up decked out in full military dress and regalia, so methinks the dude doth protest too much. Washington's first step upon arriving in Boston was to survey the army under his command. He had expected to lead some 20,000 men, but in reality, the count was closer to 16,000. And despite being the sieging force, the Continental Army was woefully undersupplied. They had only about 10,000 pounds of gunpowder, which may sound like a lot, but it worked out to only about nine rounds per man. And these were rounds for flintlock muskets, which could, at best, hurl a one-ounce hunk of metal somewhere in the general direction of the enemy so long as he was standing within about a 100 yards. The powder shortage was so critical that Washington ordered spears distributed among his ranks in case of a British attack. Disease ripped through Boston and Washington's camps alike. Dysentery, typhus, and typhoid fever ran rampant. General Howe, in an early example of biological warfare, sent boatloads of civilians infected with smallpox into the American lines but at least the Continental Army was well-fed. The Americans could count on fresh eggs, clams, apples, peaches, watermelons, coffee, bread and butter, and pork and cabbage. And they washed it all down with an insane amount of liquor. One British ship surgeon, who was allowed to visit the rebel camps in order to tend to the sick, calculated that the American soldiers were consuming roughly a bottle of rum per man every single day. When the New Englanders weren't getting drunk off their asses, they spent most of their time shoring up their defenses. Washington ordered trenches dug, 
earthen walls heightened, and fortifications erected. He also set about gaining intelligence about the British position within the city. In fact, one of Washington's first recorded expenses was a payment of $333.33, quite a bit of money back in the day, to an unnamed spy to sneak into Boston and report back on the enemy. The British, likewise, were strengthening their positions and snooping on the Americans. A British officer by the name of Richard Williams sketched out a map of Boston and the surrounding area. The map showed all of the important nearby landmarks, including a hill in the city called Mount Hordom, Boston's then red light district. According to Lieutenant Williams, quote, there's perhaps no town of its size could turn out more whores than this could, unquote. Say what you will about Boston, but when it comes to boozing and whoring, we're number one. Washington grew more and more forlorn at the state of his army. He would write in a letter, quote, the reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. Unquote. Washington came to believe that the only path to victory was a direct assault on Boston. Thankfully, his war council, having seen firsthand what happened to troops attacking a fortified position, convinced Washington on at least three occasions to stand down. But even though there would be no deciding battle, the fighting did continue in spurts. In one naval skirmish, John Manley, captain of the USS Lee, boarded and captured a British supply ship, the HMS Nancy. Now, I hesitate to say that the British ship was asking for it, but if you name your ship the Nancy and sail right up next to a ship commanded by a guy named Manley, I mean, what do you expect to happen? But while the capture of the Nancy and its military stores was a clear victory for the Americans, it did little to change the state of the siege. The months wore on, and winter crept in. If you've never been to Boston before, let me tell you, winters here can be brutal. And they were particularly brutal during the late 1700s, which was the peak of what scientists call the Little Ice Age, a period of cooling following warmer temperatures during the Middle Ages. Centuries in both armies froze to death standing watch. The Americans cut down every tree within a mile of Boston. The British began tearing apart houses for firewood. One way or the other, the siege would end soon. It was just a matter of who winter would break first. But Washington had one last ace up his sleeve. In May of 1775, Fort Ticonderoga, a British outpost in upstate New York, had fallen to colonial militias under the command of Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold. Now, this was a few years before Benedict Arnold would turn coat and join the ranks of some of the most hated men in American history. But wait! He can't kill me for being crusty! I'm not him! I'm Homer Simpson! The same Homer Simpson who crashed his car through the wall of our club? Uh, actually, my name is Barney. Yeah, Barney Gumble. The same Barney Gumble who keeps taking pictures of my sister? Uh, actually, my real name is, uh, think, Krusty, think, Joe Valachi! The same Joe Valachi who squealed to the Senate committee about organized crime? Benedict Arnold! The same Benedict Arnold who plotted to surrender West Point to the hated British? Don't! Oh! In surrendering Fort Ticonderoga, the British had also surrendered a great deal of artillery, some 58 mortars and cannon, including a brass 24-pound gun that weighed more than 5,000 pounds. The Continental Army at Boston had little to no artillery, but Henry Knox had a plan to change all that. 
1775, Henry Knox was only 25 years old. Before the siege began, he was a bookseller in Boston with no military experience whatsoever. He became an artillery officer purely on the virtue of having read a few books on the subject, which should give you a sense of how desperate the American cause was at that point. Knox and Washington quickly struck up a friendship, and Knox believed that the cannon at Fort Ticonderoga could turn the tide at Boston. So he asked Washington to give him leave to retrieve it. Washington agreed, and on December 5, 1775, Knox arrived at Fort Ticonderoga. The task before him was Herculean. Knox needed to transport 60 tons of artillery, more than 300 miles across rivers, lakes, and mountains, using only oxen and sleds. When Knox reached the frozen Hudson River, he found that the ice wasn't strong enough to support the cannon. Knox ordered his men to cut holes in the ice, the theory being that water would come up through the holes, freeze, and then strengthen the ice. Now, I'm not an ice scientist, but that doesn't sound like a particularly good way of shoring up a frozen river to me. And lo and behold, one of the larger cannons broke through the ice and sank to the bottom of the Hudson. To Knox's credit, though, he just didn't say fuck it like you and I probably would have done. He spent an entire day pulling that sunken cannon out of the river. And after 56 grueling days slogging through ice, snow, mud, and rock, Knox arrived in Boston on January 24th, 1776. He hadn't lost a single gun. One historian would refer to Knox's effort as, quote, one of the most stupendous feats of logistics of the entire war, unquote. Knox, if you're curious, would go on to play a critical role in a number of other campaigns during the Revolutionary War. He would be promoted to the rank of Major General, would serve as the first U.S. Secretary of War, and Fort Knox, the site of the U.S.'s gold bullion reserves, would be named in his honor. The question facing Washington and his war council now was how best to use the artillery Henry Knox had delivered. Throughout the siege, both sides had commented on the strategic importance of Dorchester Heights, the hills to the south of Boston, but neither side had yet moved to take them. If the Americans could get their newly acquired guns to the top of Dorchester Heights, they could fire at will on Boston and the ships of the Royal Navy anchored in Boston Harbor. But Washington knew if he made a move on Dorchester Heights, the British would either need to launch a full-scale attack or flee the city. So rather than risk a battle, Washington came up with a plan to take the heights before the British even knew what had happened. Enter Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Putnam. And let's pause for a quick second to say that people's names just aren't as cool as they once were. Old Rufus knew how the Americans could fortify Dorchester Heights in a single night. Before the war, he had been a millwright, or a guy who builds mills, which many knew how to break down, move, and reassemble machines and structures. He used this experience to devise a system of movable fortifications that could be prefabricated in safety, marched up Dorchester Heights, and then quickly put together. Because the ground was frozen solid, the fortifications consisted mostly of fascines, or bundles of sticks that could be stacked on top of the earth to offer protection from small arms fire. On the night of March 4th, about 2,000 troops began carrying the fortifications and cannon up the heights, using hay to muffle the noise they made. By first light on March 5th, 1776, the sixth anniversary of the Boston Massacre, the Continental Army had successfully fortified Dorchester Heights. Upon waking, General Howe looked at the hills with amazement. 
My God, he remarked, these fellows have done more work in one night than I could make my army do in three months. But even with all the care Washington and his officers took in concealing their intentions, the British should have known what was happening. A spy known only as Junius had informed the British weeks before that, quote, the rebels intend to bombard the town from Dorchester, unquote. Fatefully, no one heeded Junius's warning. The commander of the British fleet in Boston Harbor sent a message to Howe, saying that if he could not drive the American artillery off of the heights, his ships would set sail. It was simply too dangerous to stay. Howe weighed his options. He could launch an attack, but by now the Continental Army had added further defenses, including barrels full of rocks that could be rolled down the hill at the advancing British, known in military parlance as the Donkey Kong defense. And if Howe chose to attack, Washington had readied boats to assault the defenseless Boston from the north. Howe's men would be trapped, and the ensuing bloodbath might have exceeded the death toll of the Battle of Bunker Hill. Still, Howe could not stomach the idea that his position was lost, and he made plans to take the heights. But the evening of March 5th, a snowstorm hit Boston. By the time the weather had cleared several days later, Howe had come to his senses. He knew at last he would need to surrender Boston. Howe sent a message to Washington indicating his plans to evacuate the city and informing him that if the rebels fired on his ships, he would put Boston to the torch. In addition to his troops, Howe planned on evacuating all of the Loyalists still in the city, though they wouldn't be told where they were to be taken until they came aboard. 120 ships, carrying 10,000 British soldiers and more than 1,000 civilians, set sail for the port of Halifax in the British colony of Nova Scotia. The American guns were silent, and the last of the British left Boston on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. And woo boy, if you thought they were drinking before, let me tell you, the party had just begun. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you about my town. I'm going to tell you a big fat story, baby. despite the humiliating loss, would continue to serve as commander-in-chief of British forces in America. In fact, he would get a rematch against Washington in the campaign for New York and New Jersey. But that's a story for another day. In recognition of his victory, the Continental Congress ordered a gold medal struck in Washington's honor and issued him a formal letter of gratitude. Quote, Those pages in the annals of America will record that under your direction... An undisciplined band of husbandmen, in the course of a few months, became soldiers. 
Husbandman means farmer, if you, like me, needed to look that one up. And so it was that American farmers turned soldiers in retaking the city of Boston had proven that the great and powerful British Empire could be bested. One of the things I love about history is how much it resembles the 2004 Ashton Kutcher and Amy Smart vehicle, The Butterfly Effect, a thriller in which the main character uses a journal to make small changes to his past that totally redefine the reality of his present. I just wish there was a simpler way to describe that phenomenon. In any event, history turns on a dime. Without the United States of America, the modern world would be, for better or worse, a vastly different place. Without the men and women who took up muskets and quills in the name of revolution, there would be no United States of America. Without the victory at Boston, the revolution might have ended before it could begin. And if the Americans had not found their resolve in their defeat on Bunker Hill, there might have been no ultimate victory at Boston. And here's where it really gets fun. The defenders of the Battle of Bunker Hill might have been far more easily routed if the British had first weakened their positions with artillery fire. But the cannons that were to be used on Bunker Hill were six-pound guns, and the British chief artillery officer had sent over nine-pound shot. And why did the artillery officer make such a boneheaded mistake? Well, as is a contributing factor to much male stupidity throughout history, it's because he was distracted by his plans later that night to have sex with the schoolmaster's daughter. And so, a kingdom was lost, all for want of a nooner. Each of us makes countless decisions every single day. But even the most seemingly inconsequential can ripple forward through time. Some people may think that's terrifying, but to me, it's some pretty cool shit. Thank you all for listening. And a special thanks to Benny Lula, Art Girls Rock, Anonymous Plus, Ace Uno, and Sibjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsjitsj